It's an honor to serve you this morning by opening God's word with you. And indeed, it's a privilege for me to, from this pulpit, to proclaim the word of God. So let's just pray really quick and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come to you this morning, not just to study the Bible, but to meet you through your word. I pray that your spirit would illumine your word to us. Help us to understand it. Not for the purpose of filling our minds, but for loving you all the more. We pray in your precious son's name. Amen. You don't get too far into your Bible before you realize that God wants us to know him rightly. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden so that they would know who he is. From the very beginning, God was and is a verbal God. He communicates. He is the author of language. And he is not unclear. And he has spoken to us in his word so that we can enter into relationship with him. You also don't get far into your Bible before you also see that Satan is determined. He's on a quest that we would misunderstand God. In his temptation of Eve, Satan characterized God as unkind, ungracious, unloving, someone who was withholding something good from Eve. You see, when we misunderstand God, moral compromise soon follows. And if we are to live righteously, then we must rightly understand the righteous one. I'd like to direct your attention to Exodus chapter 33. And our text will be chapters 33, verse 18 to 34, verse 9. So Exodus 33, 18 to 34, verse 9. And this passage contains the greatest self-revelation of God in the entire Old Testament. Martin Luther was, the quote is attributed to Martin Luther, that he said this text contained the sermon on the name of the Lord. This message is titled, Who is the Lord? And from this text, we must know the Lord as he really is, so that we may worship him as he deserves. We must know the Lord as he really is so that we may worship him as he deserves. And from chapter 33, verse 18 to verse 23, we see that we must seek the voice and not the vision. We must seek the voice and not the vision. This account before us comes in the midst of Israel's greatest defection as a people and as a nation in their history up until this point. They had just agreed to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. 
which prohibited the worship of any other God besides the one true God, Yahweh. And within days of agreeing to this covenant, they demanded that Aaron build for them another God. And Aaron built them this golden calf they worshipped. And God in his holy righteous anger was about to consume the nation. But because of Moses' intercession for Israel, God relented and showed them mercy. And then God dropped another hammer blow. He said that he would not go in the midst of Israel to the promised land. What would heaven be without God? God said that he would let them go to the land of Canaan, but that he himself would not go with them. And Moses knew that this news was disaster. So again, Moses interceded. And he said, God, isn't this what separates us from all the nations of the earth that you yourself go in the midst of us? And in verse 17... The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God knew Moses by name. Not only did God show favor to Moses, but God was intimately acquainted with Moses Himself. He was in relationship with Moses. And in response to this stunning declaration from God that God knew Moses' name, Moses said in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And I believe that Moses asked to see God's glory because he wanted to know God as he really is. Moses had already seen glimpses of God's glory. You remember from Mount Sinai when when God appeared to him from the midst of the burning bush. And he appeared to Moses as a devouring flame in Exodus 24 when he ratified the covenant with Israel. But these appearances of, of God's glory were limited. They were veiled And Moses was saying, God, I want to see you unveiled. I want to see you face to face as you really are because I want to know you. The crisis of the golden calf incident put God's justice and mercy on display as never before. God said that he was going to consume the nation because of their rebellion, but he showed them grace And Moses, just stunned by God's demonstration of grace, told God, I want to know you. And this should be the desire of every believer. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you should desire to know God as he really is. The more we find out about him, the more we want to know him. And the more God shows us his unfathomable grace, It's like we say, God, who are you that you 
would show me the sinner. Such unparalleled grace. And our desire to know God should culminate in a longing to see his very face as Moses did. Show me your glory. So I would ask you this morning, individually, do you desire to know God? To see his face? To know him as he really is? If you do, I urge you to to listen in this morning on this amazing conversation between the Lord and Moses. Now, up until this moment, God granted Moses every request Moses made. But this request to see the fullness of God's glory was one request too far. And God responded in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God was saying to Moses, Moses, you can't see my face and live. You can't see me in all of my fullness. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And this point is critical. Instead of God showing his undiminished glory to Moses, he would instead proclaim to Moses his name, Yahweh, the Lord, which is his covenant name. Now in your Bibles, you should see in verse 19, the Lord there should be in all capitals. And when the Lord is in all capitals in the Old Testament, it means it signifies Yahweh or Jehovah. When the Lord is is not in all capitals, it's the Lord or Adonai. Now to know someone by name is, is very personal. Remember in verse 17, God told Moses, I know you by name. So when God said that he would declare his name to Moses, what he was saying was that he would declare his his innermost character and essence to Moses. So that Moses would know God as he really is. And what God was saying was, Moses, you can't see me face to face. But you can know my essence as I really am. And the essence of my character, in verse 19, is that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses, I am the God of mercy and grace, and I delight to freely show mercy on whomever I desire. This mercy is not coerced, it's not forced, but it's an act of my sovereign choice. And in verses 19 and 20, we we see this juxtaposition of, of God's unbearable holiness and his unfathomable grace. He is so holy that Moses can't see his face and live. 
And God is so gracious that he delights to, to show grace and mercy to whomever he desires. Now let me pause here and say that it was good for Moses to desire to see God's face. God didn't rebuke Moses. It's like, you know, Moses, this is a bad request. You shouldn't desire to see my face. You say, no, Moses, this is a good request, but you have to understand something. In your sinful, finite body, there is a limitation of how much of my glory you can take in. And instead, God redirected Moses to his revealed character as spoken by God. Moses must seek God's voice and not his vision. And this is instructive for us as well. Because in this fallen world, in our fallen bodies, you and I are limited. Limited in how much we can take in of God's majesty. You know, it, part of my church background is, is coming from um, a church background where people desire to see the miraculous all the time. There was this insatiable desire. I think it was partly a good desire to see God's glory. But as I read this text, I think God would, would tell us that we should seek his word to know him first, above and beyond the miraculous in this fallen world. We must await the new heavens and the new earth when the book of Revelation tells us we will see his face, Revelation 22, verse 4. And we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, that day is coming when we will see God's face, when we will see him as he is. But in the meantime, let us seek his word to know God. We also, from this text, reject the claims of those who say that they've seen God, whether in heaven or on earth. I mean, the, people write books about these things, right, guys? They, they, they die, they go to heaven, they see God, they come back, and, and they write all kinds of crazy stories. These books sell like, like, like candy, right? It's just people are um, hungry for these kinds of books, but we reject these claims because God told Moses, if man sees my face, he would die. So back to Exodus 33, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now God was going to hide Moses with his hand in a cleft of the rock, and he was going to make his glory pass by. And after Moses, after God's glory passed by Moses, Moses would be able to see essentially the backside, the, the trail of God's Glory. He wouldn't see his face, but the backside of God's glory. And he was going to proclaim the name of Yahweh. So we must seek the voice of God and not the vision to know him. 
from chapter 34, verses 1 to 7, we must also know the God of love and justice. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Now God was going to renew his covenant with Israel, the covenant that Israel had broken. He wanted to restore the relationship with his people that Israel had broken. And we see from this text that God desires relationship with us even when we fail, even in the midst of our worst failings. God still desires to bring us into relationship with him. But no one must go with Moses up the mountain, not not even grazing animals, lest they perish from the sight of God's immense glory. So Moses obeyed God's instructions in verse 4, and he cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now as we approach verses 5 to 7, let us proceed with reverence and worship. For the ground on which we stand, these verses, verses 5 to 7, this ground is holy ground. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord descended in the cloud, though Moses had gone up to the mountain to meet him. It was Yahweh who descended to meet with Moses. And he descended in the cloud to shield Moses from the fullness of his glory. And Yahweh stood with Moses there, indicating that he wanted to spend time with Moses. This was not to be a passing vision. God wanted to spend time with Moses. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The purpose of Yahweh's visit to Moses was to to declare his awesome covenant name, Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? Remember in Exodus 3, Moses asked God from the burning bush, what is your name? And God told him, I am Yahweh. And in Exodus 34, Moses is going to receive from God not only his name, but the meaning of his name. This morning, Yahweh, the covenant God, 
Jehovah desires to enter into relationship with us. He desires that we know his name. He invites us to know him. Let us proceed to know the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth. Generation. Yahweh. Yahweh. The Lord repeated his name twice to emphasize to Moses Moses, this is who I am. Listen. And Yahweh wanted to, to communicate to Moses two things about his character that he is a God of unfathomable love. And he is a God of certain justice. He is the God of unfathomable love in verse 6. He is a God merciful and gracious. He's a king who is merciful. Now, this word merciful has the idea of, of tender love and compassion. And we are so indebted to King David in Psalm 103. Let's actually turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is, or was David's commentary on Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. Now you remember from Deuteronomy 17, one of the commands for the kings of Israel was that they were to make a copy of the law of God and meditate on that law day and night. The king was supposed to be a student of Torah. Now David was a student of Torah. And we see his reflections on Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7 in this psalm. Psalm 103, verses 7 to 8 says he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So, so David has in mind here God's revelation to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. It says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Wow, we've just heard that, haven't we? From Exodus 34. And God told Moses, that he was a God who was merciful and gracious. And in Psalm 103, verse 13, David said, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That word compassion is the same word from Exodus 34, verse 6. God is merciful. 
as a father with his children. So the Lord is compassionate to us. You know, as, as a father in my saner moments, in, in my gracious moments, right, when my kids disobey and they sin, when the Spirit is leading me, I'm not harsh with my children, but compassionate with them. It's like, sons, daughter, I, I know that you've sinned. I know you've disobeyed me. But God is merciful to us. He is compassionate with us. And as a father is compassionate with his children, so God is compassionate with us. Back to Exodus 34, verse 6. Not only is he a merciful God, but he is a gracious God. And, And the meaning of this word gracious is that God does not deal with us as we deserve as sinners. We deserve certain and immediate judgment and wrath. But God gives us grace. I mean, think about Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God would have been justified in immediately bringing Adam and Eve out of hiding and consuming them in his anger. But he didn't. His initial disposition, his initial reaction to Adam and Eve was grace and not judgment. Psalm 103, verse 10, David said, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He is a God of grace. He is slow to anger as the God of Grace. God delays in the execution of his wrath. I came to know Jesus Christ at the age of 17 after I graduated from high school. And when I think about my life of sin before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, what, what wasted years. What years of of pursuing folly and sin and rebellion against God and instead of bringing me joy and life, it brought me tragedy and death. God would have been just to strike me down. But he is a God slow to anger. And I owe my redemption to this gracious God who is slow anger. Jesus himself was slow to anger, remember? He he cried out, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. It's as if Jesus was calling out to Jerusalem, come to me. Come to me in repentance and I will accept you. Why? Why is God so patient with the rebellion of mankind over the millennia? Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us, waiting for his children to come to him in repentance. And I can't help but think that perhaps there is someone out here this morning who has lived a life of sin. And maybe you've come in here seeking a word from the Lord regarding your condition. Maybe God has delayed in his execution of justice to you so that you would hear of his character, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, waiting for you to hear of his offer of grace to you. God desires that you come to him in repentance and faith. He will not turn you back, but he will accept you as a father does his child. Now, now why is the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, It is because Yahweh, in his innermost essence, is full of, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in verses 6 to 7, there's a key phrase in these verses. It is this. That he is full of love and truth. This steadfast love is is unconditional. It is his determined love by which he covenants himself to his people to do them good. He is full of love, bursting at the seams with love. He overflows with love. Now think about it. Before creation, what was God doing. Before God was a creator, who was he? God was the God of love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in eternal love, in perfect harmony, loving one another. And that love, that intra-Trinitarian love has flowed out to us. And what good news that is. One commentator wrote, so rich, so bounteous, so multitudinous are the expressions of the divine favor that we may be said to be almost overflown with them. And I think that the Apostle Paul was actually thinking about Exodus 34, verse 6, when he wrote in 1 Timothy 1.14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It was more than enough for me. Why? Because God is a God full of love. And how much love does God have? How immense is his love? 
David in Psalm 103.11 rejoiced. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And our God is not like those who promise their love only to break their promises. Or those who love one moment and hate the next. Perhaps someone has failed you this morning. Perhaps someone has declared their love and allegiance to you only to burn you, to turn their backs on you. Our God is not like that. His love is true. For he is the God not only full of love, but full of truth in verse 6. Full of love and faithfulness. He is reliable and trustworthy. When he commits to love us, he makes certain promises to us and we can bank our lives on those promises. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will complete the work that he began in us all the way until the very end. And brothers and sisters, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, eternity will be the, the, the never-ending demonstration of the infinite love of God to us. And what is God's greatest demonstration to us? That he is a God full of love and truth. It is the word become flesh. The one who came to explain God to us. The one who is the radiance of God's very essence. Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, and I think again, John... John was thinking of Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. And I, I love Exodus 34 because you can see the, the echoes of this verses, this verses all through the Old Testament and the New. In John 1.14, John wrote, And the Word, the one who came to explain the Father, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his Glory. Now wait, time out. Didn't Moses ask to see the glory of God? Who is the glory of God manifest among us? It is Jesus Christ. And John said, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is the greatest demonstration of the God who is bursting at the seams with infinite, eternal love and truth. The greatest demonstration of that was his death on the cross. He sacrificed himself for us, bearing the wrath of the Father so that we can receive the love of the Father. Now, God's love is, is not just sentimental love. And I, if I can describe the way the world describes love in one word today, it's sentimentality. When you turn on the radio or something, you hear songs about love, and it's just like, oh, it's just this mushy feeling, right? 
That's it. But the God of love is not just, he's not just sentimental in his love, but his love takes action. He feels love for us, but this love takes action. And in verse 7, it says he keeps his love for thousands. And I think the idea here is, is for the thousandth generation. And what, what God is saying is that into eternity, my love will endure. At the end of verse 6, he's full of love, right? He's infinite in his love. And not only his, is his love infinite in depth and breadth and height, but it is infinite in length to the thousandth generation. He is guarding and keeping his love. And if Yahweh will guard his love, then our redemption depends on his vigilance and not on ours. I think this also means that that history, the the contours and, and the lines of history are guided and directed by the God of love who will keep his love to the thousandth generation. So if you are disturbed by the, by the goings-on of this world, if you're troubled, God would say to you through this verse that he will keep his love to the thousandth generation. Do not fear. David proclaimed in Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18, the eternal nature of God's love. But the steadfast love of the Lord is is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. His love is from everlasting eternity past to everlasting eternity future upon his people. And because Yahweh is a loving God, his love also takes action in forgiveness. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And the threefold reference to sin here indicates that God forgives every single kind of sin imaginable. He forgives iniquity, which is twisted behavior. He forgives transgression, which is going beyond the limits of of God's standards. He forgives sin, which is failing to live up to God's expectations. You might say to me today, God can't forgive me. Do you you even know what I've done? I would say, God knows. And God is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he extends that forgiveness to you. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that we are like Israel here at the foot of Mount Sinai, trading the glory of God for created thing. And we are recipients of his forgiveness. And you might wonder, can, can God really clear my guilt? How, how far does he take my guilt away from me? And David, in Psalm 103, verse 12, says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's a pretty far way, the east from the west. 
Now, Yahweh's declaration of his love for us should leave us stunned. We should come to the end of, of this section just floored and amazed and awed by the God who is full of love and truth. But lest we take his love for granted, lest we presume on his mercy, God warns us that not only is he the God of unfathomable love, but he is also a God of certain justice. In verse 7, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, upon whom does the anger and justice of God fall? And the, the same phrase appears in the second commandment in Exodus 20, verse 5, which prohibits the worship of idols. And this, this anger, this justice, is not just an indiscriminate anger, but in Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, so same phrasing here, same wording, of those who what? Of those who hate me. Those who reject God and pursue idols. Those who reject God's loving rule. Say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And the consequences of, of Yahweh's justice will be felt in successive generations to the third and the fourth generation. And sin casts long shadows. If you are here this morning and, and you think, you know what? God is a God slow to anger. He, he's going to be patient with me. Right? I'm going to live my life of sin. I'm going to take my fill of this world and its pleasures. And, and after I've drunk deeply of this world's pleasures, then I'm going to get right with God. Do not presume on the kindness of God. Do not say, I will sin first and then be made right with my Creator. For God is a God of certain justice and you do not know when His justice will fall upon you. But notice that while God's judgment is felt to the third and fourth generation, his love extends to the thousandth generation, indicating that his love far surpasses his justice. So we've seen that we must seek the voice and not the vision. We must know the God of love and justice. And finally, we must worship the Lord with reverence in, verse, in verses 8 to 9. If Yahweh is a God of unfathomable love and certain justice in his innermost being, how must we respond in verse 8? How did Moses respond? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses made haste to fall on his face. The only response to the unveiling of God's glory and character is worship. And notice now 
how Moses petitioned God based on God's revelation to him in verse 9. And Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And I love this because Moses prays to God what God just spoke to him. Moses, as it were, takes a, takes a hold of God's revelation to him and repeats that revelation back to God. And I think from this verse, God would have us pray scripture back to him. You know, sometimes it can be so hard to pray, right? Well, what, what do we even say to our God? Let us open his word and pray his word back to him. And in verse 9, Moses said, For now I have found favor in your sight. And now Moses requested three things. Oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. God, if you are not with us, if you will not go with us, we will not go to the promised land. God, be with us. Take us there. No matter where we go in life, We say, God, be with us. And if you do not go, we will not go. And God, pardon our iniquity and our sin. God, you said that you are the God who delights to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. So forgive us. And not only that, but take us as your inheritance. Take us as your prized possession. And this this last request is stunning. Remember, Israel had just shoved God away. Said, we don't want you, God. We want this golden calf instead of you. And Moses is saying, God, even though we rejected you, please take us as your own possession, as your inheritance. As we come to the end of this text, I think this text would cause us to reflect on whom do we worship? Have we created a God of our own desires and of our own thoughts? Are we like Israel at the base of the mountain there telling Aaron, make a God for us? And we will worship it. Or we like Moses, calling out to God, God, show me your glory. God, I want to know you as you really are. And when God unveils himself to us, we worship. Let us be like Moses and worship God as he truly is. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third 
and the fourth generation. And not only does this text cause us to ask ourselves, whom do we worship? It also asks us, how are we changed by our worship? If you look at Exodus 34, verse 29, Exodus 34, 29, it says that Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Why? Because he had been talking with God. And beloved, when we meet God, when he meets with us, we are changed. We cannot help but be changed when we encounter the living God. Something of his character, something of his glory is transferred to us because Moses' face shone itself because he had been talking with God. We come to the New Testament and we see that we are sanctified according to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And one day, we will be glorified when Christ brings us home. We become like what we worship. Did you know that God would have us take on his character declared here in verses 6 to 7? In the, in the book of Proverbs, it tells us that we must also be slow to anger, overlooking transgression forgiving others as God has forgiven us in the book of Ephesians. We must be merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. Beloved, may we reflect this God of glory, this God of love. And may we be a loving and just people as God declared himself to be to Moses on Mount Sinai. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us the strength to comprehend together as a body what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of your Son that surpasses knowledge, that you may fill us with all of your fullness. Our Father, we desire to know you as you really are. And you declared to Moses who you are. Let us worship you in truth. And may our lives be changed as we meet with you. In your son's name I pray, amen.